the music of J.S. Bach, this is David Addis welcoming you to the inaugural episode of Securitization Matters, a podcast for the securitization industry and those interested in it. As this is the first podcast in the series, I'm going to give some background to me, Cygnus Advisory, and the intentions for this podcast. My background is in accounting at Deloitte's, Law at Arthur Robinson and Hedwig's, now called Allen's, both in Melbourne, and my introduction to securitization came as a lawyer at Kay Scholler in New York, where I worked with luminaries such as Steve Schwartz and Dominic Capolongo. Moving back to Melbourne, I joined the nascent securitization section at ANZ Investment Bank, a division of Australia and New Zealand Banking Group Limited, one of Australia's big four banks, and generally known as ANZ. That was a team of four, including my guest for today, John Barry, now Head of Securitization at National Australia Bank. I was with ANZ for 10 years, principally responsible for the formation and running of conduits, including Aurora Securitization, Coast Asset Corporation, the Kingfisher Program, and many others. I was also Chair of the Prudential Committee and on the National Committee of the Australian Securitization Forum. I now run Cygnus Advisory, which advises on aspects of securitization, particularly but not limited to prudential and regulatory matters. Cygnus Advisory holds an Australian Financial Services Licence number 360628, which enables it to advise wholesale customers. But I should point out that the Securitization Matters podcasts are not intended to constitute financial advice. The double meaning of the title is intentional. Securitization does matter, not in the same way that a vaccination for polio matters, but it is important to liquidity in the financial markets in the same way that the stock market has brought benefits to society through the conversion of interests in business into tradable securities. What are we going to cover in this series? Any matters in relation to securitization, including covered bonds, which utilize securitization techniques. This will include any structure for pooling assets and financing them, whether through the issues of securities or otherwise. Naturally, being based in Melbourne, Australia, the podcast will have an Australian flavor, but the intention is, if we get enough listeners, to extend the podcast to global securitization issues. After all, it is a connected world. My first interview is with John Barry, Head of Securitization for National Australia Bank based in Melbourne. First, a disclosure, Cygnus Advisory has done work for National Australia Bank over the last few years and hopes to do more in the future. We'll hear from John about his background, but it's fair to say that he's well experienced in the Australian and the global market. The interview with John Barry was recorded on the 19th of October, just a few days before the ASF conference on the 22nd and 23rd of October. In future podcasts, we hope to be talking to some participants in the conference about what went on and what came out of the conference, in particular, APRA's proposal to simplify APS 120. So I'm here now uh, discussing the securitization market with John Barry, the head of securitization for the National Australia Bank. Thanks for agreeing to be on the podcast, John. You're welcome, David. Great. I thought we might just start with your background. wonder whether you could give us a couple of minutes on your background in securitization and how you got into securitization. Yeah, sure, David. Well, I, I started out initially in, in chartered accounting, did that for a few years, and then joined a, a foreign bank. We're talking about the period now through the sort of mid-80s. And then from there, I joined a, a, what was known then as a merchant bank, so really working in the fixed income market across really debt capital markets. From there, I went into you know, a major banking group uh, with the ANZ actually. So I spent several years there and really saw the, you know, the very start of the securitization market, particularly through the, the early 90s and the mid, mid 90s. I came across to National Australia Bank in July 2007, which obviously sort of marked the, the start of the crisis. Yes, um, we'll talk about that later. That's yeah. right. 
Yes, I've been in the in the securitisation market now, working in the last would be 15 years or so, but more broadly in debt capital markets for you know over 20 years. You're currently you've obviously risen to be head of securitisation at National Australia Bank. Do you want to just tell us a little bit about the team? at NAB and uh, what they do and the sort of work you're doing at the moment? We've got one of the larger teams in the market, so we've got about 25 people. The team is split between Melbourne and Sydney and we've got a few people in New Zealand as well. The business is very much focused on servicing franchise customers of the bank and in respect to say residential mortgage securitisation it's mainly the financial institutions, so we're talking about the, the regional banks some of the smaller ADIs and the non-bank clients. Uh, but we, are, we do cover all asset classes, so uh, whether it be auto and equipment, consumer, trade receivables, that sort of thing. So a broad cross-section, really franchise focused, and also we, we do a lot of work for the bank itself. So we work very closely with National Australia Bank's group Treasury in helping them with their own securitisation. Issues. So just to be clear, you come from the, the client side of the business, as it were, rather than the treasury side of the That's business. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk a bit more in detail about the market. Perhaps we could just go back a few years and talk about, uh, you said, the beginning of the securitisation market in the early 1990s. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, how you saw mm. the market developing through the 90s and then through uh, the early part of the mm. 2000s? Mm -hmm. I think there was really kind of three distinct, there has been three distinct phases to the market's evolution in Australia. There was a period, I guess, from the mid-1980s where the market was emerging, that securitisation had really begun in the US in the early 80s for residential mortgages and I think the, the mid-80s for, for asset-backed. That's, uh, that's putting aside Fannie and Freddie, of course, which, that's were, right. which were going before then. That's right. Yeah. So, in Australia, we had in the in the late 80s, we had uh, a secondary mortgage market emerging, you know, off the back of what had occurred in the U.S. The New South Wales government had their FANMAC program, so that the, the initial period, I guess, was a, a slow ramp up. We started to see some of the non-bank originators in the early 90s take advantage of securitisation for pretty cost-effective funding to be able to compete, you know, originating residential mortgages uh, in competition with the banks. But I think the probably the defining point for the market in what I'd say is the second phase of gro real growth was around about 19, the mid-90s. So 95, I think it was, the, the first Prudential Standard came out for securitisation. Prudential Standard C2? C2, correct. Mm -hmm. At that point, you started to see the major banks embrace the product and start issuing residential mortgage-backed securities themselves. I think a couple of years later, some of the changes to um, withholding tax, I believe it was 1997, allowed our Aussie issuers to start tapping the offshore market. So that also represented part of that, that real growth phase. So the market you know, globally really exploded through that period as well, and Australia was part of that. As we reached the peak of the market, which would have been 2006, where the volumes, uh, annual issuance volumes would, would exceed uh, 60 billion, we had a market that was probably over 50% tapping into offshore investors. So very much US dollar or Euro denominated paper. Uh, spreads had contracted into to very low levels, in some cases single digit, low teens, that sort of thing. And co competition was, um, was very strong at that point. So the product had had great success, 
the application had broadened as well. So there was no end to potentially applying the, the technology of securitization to create AAA notes and, and tap into some very efficient funding. And very large deals too, from from memory, sort of. That's in, right. What by certainly by today's standards, uh, four billion or or more per deal. Exactly. Yeah. So as the market developed, you know, the the deals got larger, the pricing got tighter. As I say, it became a very efficient form of funding. So you mentioned the um, the start of the market with the uh, securitizers like uh, presumably Aussie Home Loans and uh, Puma and the equivalent going out to essentially disintermediate the banks and uh, raise finance for their mortgage origination directly from the market. There was also um, a time where corporates were a bit reluctant to, do, to use securitisation. Uh, some of them associated securitisation or selling their receivables with factoring and mm -hmm. felt that uh, if they were seen to be factoring their debts they were in financial trouble. But gradually the people got you know, com comfortable with the concept of securitisation and it started to be applied to other asset classes. Mm. But would you agree that the market was generally dominated by RMBS with some other asset classes? I guess the ABCP market uh, mm. had tended to, to pick up more of the other asset classes. That's right. No, I think that's a fair comment. You know, of the public issuance, it's been traditionally 80-90% has been resi mortgage backed. Having said that, there, there was a lot of activity through the period of the 90s, the, the later part of the 90s, as you said, in the asset-backed CP market, the start of the conduit markets. And much of that was with respect to things like trade receivables. So corporates were taking advantage of the product. They'd been able to shake off some of that, as you say, that reputation around factoring, etc. Under the accounting standards at the time, many of them were achieving off-balance sheet treatment and that was, that was partly a driver as well. So you mentioned that you moved to National Australia Bank in 2007, and you marked that time as the start of the GFC. A lot of others might say that the GFC started a little later than that. Why did you mark that as the start of the GFC? The, the, as I recall, I think around about the, the second week of July of 07, uh, there was a problem with one of the French funds being frozen and that there was a, a great deal of nervousness in the market at that point. So as a lot of people associate, you know, Lehman's and the bank bailouts, et cetera, through, through 08, as you know, really the, the start of the GFC, we could see some, some signs appearing prior to that. And obviously the, the full impact of the US subprime on the market, you know, was realised probably through the latter part of that year. But I think in my mind that um, 07 was a, was a turning point, uh, July 07. So that was the time we started to see CP markets being closed down. There was an Australian issuer who was issuing extendable CP with a 30-day notional maturity and extension of six months if they couldn't roll. They couldn't roll their CP would have been about August 2007, something like that. And the markets were really starting to close down then. So what happened then as we went on through 2007 and 2008, specifically focusing on the RMBS market and the CP markets as we went on? Well, we really had a period where there was um, the markets essentially closed down and the, obviously, that was picked up on, by the you know the government, the policy makers, that there was need for, for help, and it was tied in to a 
obviously a global global phenomenon at the time with credit markets um, drying up. So the you know I guess part of the response was the creation of the AOFM program. So the Treasurer essentially mandating through the through the Australian Office of Financial Management um, the purchase of RMBS in support of competition. So that that helped uh, you know kickstart the market. Just to amplify that a little, that was essentially Australian Government Treasury looking to support the regional banks and mid-level securitisers who were finding funding very difficult to obtain, rather than supporting the large banks who were still funding not so much through RMBS but through the bond market, particularly with Australian Government support. Mm -hmm. That's right, yes. You know, there's obviously the broader measures in support of the, you know, the banking system Commonwealth government guarantees and deposits, etc. But specifically in relation to the competition aspect of mortgage lending, the AOFM was was the response, and you know proved to be the appropriate one because it was quite s successful in restarting the market. Albeit the total program at the start was about four billion dollars, which in 2006 would have been a single deal. So shows how much the market had uh, changed. So through the GFC, what disappeared and what ended up being left behind? So as we came into the, that period, as I mentioned, we were relying heavily on offshore investors. The offshore component dried up so that the, as the market came back slowly, it was really the, the domestic investors. The market had relied heavily on asset-backed CP funding. As a result of the d disruption, the liquidity banks, you know, each of the major banks and several of the foreign banks had programs. Liquidity lines were being drawn, so a lot of those that contingent funding came on, on the balance sheet of the banks. And it was a period where there was a nervousness from fund man managers around the product. You know, it had got a securitization became a sort of a lethal pejorative through the association with the subprime prices. So many of the trustees cut their mandates. So investors were coming back very gradually. Spreads went much wider, so credit spreads generally widened. So where we'd normally price something over the swap rate, and at the best times it was, as you said, getting to low teens or single digits, it then became... Yeah, sort of 150 to 200 over yeah, type mark. Which is the sort of area where a lower rated tranche of triple Bs or even double Bs might have been trading in the best times. That's right. And also the demand fell off dramatically as well. Yes, it did, yeah, very much so. So as it came back, it was, it was essentially driven by domestic investors. The Australian Office of Financial Management, many of the bank balance sheets were buying. So I think the, you know, the major banks for their liquidity books and They've been supporting the market in anticipation of some of the Basel III requirements. There was also some changes made by the Reserve Bank in terms of broadening the repo eligibility criteria. I think that was also critical in supporting the market as well at the time. So most of the banks even currently have fairly large repo eligible programs where they're securitising RMBS to a repo eligible standard and repoing that with the RBA. That's right, and retaining those sort of as um, contingent collateral. Yeah. That's correct. So what's disappeared is asset-backed CP is not completely gone, but it's very much reduced from where it was. I think so. You know, if you look at the, the programs are, are far smaller. Some of the regulatory change, which we might 
touch on separately. I think particularly Basel III and some of the Dodd-Frank changes with respect to the US asset-backed CP market represent real challenges for the product going forward. So I think the, the general view is that it's probably got a fairly limited lifespan. Personally, I view that as a bit of a pity, really, because it wasn't as though asset-backed CP, if the investors knew what they were buying, and you know, asset-backed CP can be collateralised by very highly rated uh, RMBS, for example, you know, a lot of investors had a need for short data paper of 30 days, 30, 60, 90 days, which is where the market, particularly the 30-day market, was in asset-backed CP. I think that's a bit of a pity that that's that's mm. disappeared. Uh, I think. Perhaps early on there was not a real recognition that of some of the risks that the that the sponsoring banks had, i.e. getting drawn on their liquidity and so on, and perhaps mm. not pricing that entirely correctly, yep. or at least not pricing it correctly in the subsequent uh, melee of the of the GFC. Mm. But as long as one recognises that you've still essentially got most of the risk as a sponsoring bank, packaging up. Uh, RMBS into a 30-day product for an investor who needs it still seems to me to be mm. a useful type of activity. Mm. And there is really a, you know, what, there's a void now in highly rated short-dated instruments that's been created, I guess, by the lack of supply of paper. I think where the, where the asset-backed CP makes most sense, recognising, you know, some of the points you mentioned there, particularly with respect to mismatch between asset and liabilities, is in the funding of short-term revolving receivables like trade receivables that amortise out you know, very quickly. So in the context of issuing 30, 60, 90-day commercial paper, you've got a pretty good match between the underlying asset. So that's, that's something that does still make very good sense to me. However, I suppose the, the level of demand for trade receivables, for example, is probably insufficient to be running the, large, the sort of scale that you need for asset-backed CP programs, which tended to be assisted in, at least in their scale, by the repackaging of, of bonds and so mm, on. So, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Particularly, particularly in the US market where it was pre-GFC, it was all about how large your program were, was. So if you yes. could get to 50, 60 billion, those sort of numbers, and up with some of the big US banks, that you'd, you'd get better execution, you'd have more there'd be the association of greater liquidity in the paper. Yeah. So obviously we, we saw the demise of the sieves, which Bill Gross described as part of the shadow banking industry, uh, which the sieves themselves in the, in the pre-GFC created a great demand for anything basically, any sort of bonds that they could get that were, were uh, had a decent yield on them. Mm. I, I, I don't personally see the likelihood of sieves coming back anytime soon. What do you think is that, that disappeared that might come back again? Uh, given that we're probably, at least in the Australian market, we're fairly much limited to prime RMBS. What might you think that's that, that disappeared, like, um, well, we just talked about ABCP, but say CMBS, other uh, asset-backed uh, categories such as autos and so on, are they likely mm. to come back? Well, I think autos is, um, is one aspect of the market. has been relatively unaffected by the, the subprime. You know, there would be a there was a flow on effect initially in terms of credit spreads, but some of the best performance of uh, of any assets in the fixed income market have been, you know, auto and consumer ABS deals, particularly in the U.S. 
So they, they really haven't missed a beat in terms of performance and um, the investors I think are very happy with the sort of returns they've achieved. So that's been pretty much a constant through the market and something that you can really hold, hold up as, um, as a highlight. And, th and just if I could interrupt for a mm. second, that's actually very interesting considering the turmoil that the American car market's been through. Yes. So uh, it's a kind of unusual circumstance, but anyway. It is, yeah. yeah. So in the Australian context, the issuance of you know, auto, auto and equipment backed has been pretty consistent. It's actually up this year on last year. It's still not n nearly as large as the, the resi mortgage market, but uh, it's been pretty efficient. And we note that those Australian issuers that are tapping into offshore markets, in particularly the US, are getting very attractive pricing, very good execution out of those deals. The other, the other market that we had developed through the latter part of the 90s and the early part of the, the decade the, was the, the CMBS market. So we had a number of the, the A REITs, the, the, what was originally the listed property trusts issuing uh, CMBS, being able to achieve AAA ratings on, on paper, etc. That market has, has really disappeared and it's, it's essentially been replaced by, as I understand it, a combination of those A-REITs issuing their own unsecured paper, the extent to which they've got an investment grade rating, or essentially secured bonds. So um, that's one aspect of the market that's not there. And you don't see that coming back anytime soon? I think in certain, you know, for certain deals, particularly I'm thinking about, um, you know, credit tenant lease, where you've got a a highly bondable, rated highly rated lessee, you know, say a government, triple yeah. then, A, then that probably makes sense. But no, I don't see a lot of potential for growth there. I think the, in relation to what, what, is dis what may return, I think your point was correct. The leverage players, the sieves, they've gone. What we're starting to, to see in offshore markets is the return of the real money investors. So the investors that were buying the paper pre-GFC, and if we think about you know the, the short the the cash funds that were buying some of the shorter weighted average life deals mm -hmm. uh, and also the asset backed CP, but the cash funds and then the you know the life companies, insurance companies, the longer investors. One of the really encouraging signs over the last sort of 12 months is that we're seeing new mandates being formed by those types of investors that they're gradually coming back into the market. And this includes bank balance sheets offshore as well. So I think you know one of the things that National Australia Bank has done since um, 2010 is really try to promote that that trend, trying to get the offshore investors back into the market. That we recognise that the local market is is highly concentrated between, as I mentioned, the AOFM bank balance sheets and a very small number of, of real money investors. So, so tapping offshore, accessing international investors has been an important thing. And what we've found is that the, the dynamics offshore, the, the fundamentals are quite conducive. So we have, for example, the, the cash funds that we talk to in the US, you know, the 2A7 funds, et cetera, money market funds. Uh, there's a dearth of supply of product that they can buy at the moment. The, the, the private label market in the US for RMBS is virtually non-existent. Mm -hmm. There's been a number of downgrades. There's sensitivities to financials, in particular those associated with Europe. 
they have been big buyers of UK and to a lesser extent Dutch product, albeit the spreads have contracted those bonds to some investors are starting to look expensive. And we're meanwhile, talking, we're talking RMBS here, aren't we? Covered bonds. <coughs> we're talking RMBS, yeah. yeah. So meanwhile, you know, the performance of the the Aussie deals has been very good. That the collateral, you know, if you look at the the arrears and the loss rates and the the insurance claims, etc., has been has been very positive. So so the cash funds are starting to look at the Aussie product and some of those longer term investors where. You know, they're talking maybe three to ten years. Um, I'm thinking of the life companies, for example. Uh, again, there's a shortage of product, and they're they're uh, they're facing a current environment where yields are, are very tight, and they're they're looking for pickup. And in that regard, they're very interested in the the Australian products. So we've got trends, the three main trends offshore at the moment. So we've had one point in the U.S. on the U.S. dollar side, we've had five deals since 2010, about 1.7 billion. And with each deal, the level of investor participation is improving. You know, the quality of the books, et cetera, is getting better and better. We're getting a lot of inquiry. We're actually starting to see a very similar trend now in UK, Europe. So particularly for the UK investors, they're coming back into the market. You, each week, I think we'd have a call with a US investor where there might be a new mandate created. So that's very positive. And the other aspect is the industry's been really focusing on a sort of education piece up in Asia. So pre-GFC we had some participation from particularly the Singapore branches of the European banks and some of the Chinese banks. We're now sort of casting a, a wider net, particularly to the Japanese investors. So we've seen Japanese investors participate in recent deals. The ASF's recently been up there doing seminars etc that's um, that's another area that's that we're hopeful so yeah getting back to your original question we do see offshore investors coming back into the market as something that will you know is gradually occurring but it in itself it's a very positive trend can i just uh, touch on the role of regulators through the gfc and the uh, and and post the gfc because obviously there's been a huge change increase in the level of regulation and so would you like to make a comment on uh, regulation? Yeah I think there's there's obviously since the GFC an important part of the response to that is is greater regulation basically the regulators trying to reduce the likelihood of a, an occurrence of a you know subprime type crisis a reoccurrence so that's been a that's been a global trend, and it has impact, particularly with respect to our issuers that are looking to tap into offshore markets. But the major banks generally and their funding. So the regulation in in Europe, the CRD2 and the US Dodd Frank, etc., that is all impacting our our market by extension. I think you know perhaps some of the impacts wasn't intended, but it it is capturing our market. The response. The general view, and particularly as we talk to investors offshore, the view is that Australia, you know, has a strong economy, is very strong, has a strong banking system that's been very well regulated through the GFC. I recently spoke to one investor in in Washington, one of the very largest fixed income investors globally, and that was the first point they made. They said one of the reasons we really like Australia is the the strength of the regulation. So I think there's, yeah, and you mentioned the, um, 
obviously the prudential side with the banks, so APRA and the BIS, etc. But I think with respect to the, the Reserve Bank, Treasury, ASIC, etc., that's been, that's been a real strength. With respect to the prudential regulation, as you know, there's been, there's been changes necessary to our local prudential standard APS 120 with respect to Basel, so with, with resecurisation, for example. But the, the standard itself, the APRA is on record as saying that, um, you know, that it's not perfect um, and they'd like to come back to more principles-based approach that they've seen evidence of you know, potential capital leakage in the system and, and some parties looking to try to work, work around, perhaps arbitrage some of the rules. Uh, obey the, uh, the letters rather than the spirit, I think, is how Charles Luttrell put it last year. That's right, that's mm-hmm. right. And we're, we're actually looking forward to the, the Australian Securitisation Conference next week and, and Charles Luttrell is, uh, is one of the keynote speakers. So if you go back and have a look at his pres- presentation from last year, He's obviously done some thinking about what might work in a, in a, you know, in terms of his vision of a new APS 120. Last year, he'd referred, he'd asked the question, for example, uh, why do we need more than two tranches in a securitisation? So it's going to be very interesting to see how that plays out. There is a little bit, I guess, the the element that the market has to to manage is a little bit of uncertainty. So increased regulation, you know, perpetuates that that uncertainty. And that's an issue for the, the banks that provide warehouse facilities, but also for the issuers, etc. So I think one of the things that we'll look forward to is getting greater uh, clarity on some of those issues so that we can move forward in, you know, with more confidence. Yes, I'd say from a personal perspective, it, kind of, it was ironic that the Basel II moved to embedding a role of the rating agencies fairly heavily in, um, in securitised product and right throughout the GFC the rating agencies came in for fairly heavy criticism and uh, everyone immediately tried to backtrack from that but mm. during the GFC we were essentially implementing Basel II and then Basel II and a half uh, thus cementing the role of the uh, of the rating agencies and the Basel committee has, has said outright that they're going to re-examine the, the role of the rating agencies in the standards so we may well be in for more period of uncertainty as we have just literally embedded the uh, ratings-based approach, for example, in APS 120, mm-hmm. and we'll probably potentially have to take it out again uh, I- in the future. So uh, unfortunately, I, I think the role of uncertainty is is not uh, over yet, and mm. uh, it's going to be a little while before standards are settled. I don't think we could realistically expect that standards will ever be constant for long periods of time, because the market moves, people attempt to move with the standards or, uh, or game the standards in some case, those standards will, will be constantly changed to, mm. to adjust to that. I think, the, I think that's very true and it is somewhat ironic, that point you make about the rating agencies. I think one of the key things with regulation generally is that yeah, the markets will, will adapt. Um, they, we've, we've seen that, they're pretty good at adapting, but what we'd like to see is harmonisation of regulation and, and therefore you know, we have a pretty much a level playing field in what is a global market. So there's been one of the areas that gets a fair bit of attention with securitisation is risk retention rules. So the, you know, the skin in the game um, type requirement. So, you know, the the US and the UK have, you know, slightly different rules in that regard. 
ASIC are working with IOSCO to form you know, the Australian version and there's talk of passporting and all the rest. So I think you know, in an ideal world, we'd have, we'd have harmony around some of those issues as well as a key thing. Yes, I, I think that that's certainly true, uh, albeit uh, particularly given um, the US moving a fair bit slower than the rest of the world, or more slowly, intentionally, I think, then uh, that's going to be some time before we really get to right. consistency. That might be the subject of a, of a future podcast. Mm. Now, I might just uh, turn to the area of covered bonds, because at least in Australia, covered bonds weren't a feature of the uh, Australian market until very recently. In fact, many years ago, Brian Salter and I put a submission into APRA on behalf of the ASF, suggesting that, the, that APRA look at covered bonds and APRA turned it down. One of the things I think that came out of the, uh, of the GFC was an, another relook at the uh, covered bond market, particularly one of the things that APRA said in its first rejection of, the, uh, of covered bonds was that it was undermining the banking depositor provisions and therefore they wouldn't look at it until there was some form of depositor protection. Mm. Now obviously through the GFC, at least in Australia, there was an initially a, a million dollar guarantee from the Commonwealth Government which has now been reduced to $250,000 per deposit. So that leg of the objection was removed and then uh, I think the ASF had some very fruitful dialogue with Treasury which then led eventually to the acceptance of covered bonds, albeit uh, APRA excluded covered bonds from the operation of APS 120 and, and set a, a separate mm. uh, standard for only covered bonds. Would you like to comment mm. on uh, covered bonds? Because they're obviously, uh, I think mm. the, the Australian Securitisation Forum certainly sees covered bonds as part of the securitisation industry and they utilise securitisation techniques. Mm. Would you like to comment yeah, on sure. that? Yeah, sure. How uh, that's uh, played out? You know, since the legislation was introduced and the major banks have started issuing and, and one of the regionals, Suncorp as well, it's been a tremendously successful market and introduction. If you look at the reasons, part of the reason I think for introducing the covered bonds or allowing it, given some of that history you mentioned, was around adding stability to the financial system. You know, if we think of the funding the Australian deficit, a lot of it is through the major banks. We've seen um, historically, and particularly in Europe, the covered bond market, even through the worst of the, the crisis, held up pretty well. It was a, a market that was, you know, was always open. And by allowing the, the major banks to tap into those investors, it created a, a new source of very reliable funding. So really good from an overall system standpoint. I think one of the one of the consequences, and and obviously you know their cap, there's an eight percent cap involved in that, etc. So we don't see it as a replacement to securitisation, but something at least for the those that can get the the AAA rating as something that sits nicely alongside securitisation. In the early part of this year, as the major banks sought to take advantage of of the new legislation and, and issuing in pretty large volumes. That had a knock-on effect to the supply of RMBS. So those, as we, you know, if we compare through uh, 2010 and 2011, the major bank issuance this year has been has been down as a result of that. But we have had now a couple of issues. A couple of the majors have issued RMBS, and National Australia Bank recently issued an, an ABS deal. I think the there was an interesting phenomenon with the with the spreads at which covered bonds were issued domestically was seemed to be very generous to investors 
that proved to be the case. They've rallied in, contracted significantly. So I think you'd have a lot of investors out there if they're still holding deals that they bought earlier this year that were issued at margins of you know, 165, 170 over swap would be extremely happy with their, their mark to market. Look, I think all that groundwork and some of the work at the industry level that you referred to has been, has been pretty fruitful. But if you look across the securitization market, it's not going to help the entire breadth of the market. It will mainly help the, the major banks. And hopefully they can you know, pass on some of that benefit. You know, a lot of our customers, are the, you know, we provide warehouse funding to, to regional banks, smaller ADIs and non-banks. So I think hopefully there's a, a knock-on benefit. Great. Let's um, let's talk about now the market as you see it coming up for the next year or beyond, and particularly focusing on on you know, the investors, where they're going to come from, because obviously they drive the the, the demand side does drive the supply to a great extent, mm-hmm. and we've we've touched on regulation as well. Would you like to talk a little bit about uh, how you see the market panning out this, in the next year? Sure. Well, the, I think that um, the market in the next 12 months really has to deliver. I think, you know, we've had a period, we, you know, we haven't had a lot of growth in terms of issuance. People are, you know, question the, 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 whether the AOFM program has achieved all its objectives. I personally think it has, but I think we're now at a, hopefully um, what is a defining point We're in an environment now where spreads have contracted, where the Aussie product relative to to other instruments, including banks, senior unsecured and covered bonds, looks attractive from a relative value perspective. We're seeing new investors come come back into the product. The banks, you know, we, we often sort of say, well, we're more interested in real money investors domestically, which is true, but the banks, the banks are still buyers, they're natural buyers, particularly under Basel III and some of the liquidity uh, requirements, etc. So hopefully that will continue. But I think if we can, if the product is to deliver this year, it's going to be a situation of spreads will have to contract, we'll get more volume out there, we'll have less reliance on the Australian Office of Financial Management as a buyer which has been one of the trends anyway, their participation in deals has been reducing. And I think if we can get if we can get greater clarity around regulation and if the collateral st- still continues to perform very well, you know, we can look back in 12 months and say we're, we're over the hump. But as we stand right now, I don't think we can say that. So we're pretty optimistic that that will happen. But um, there are some dependencies there. And David, I think I'd mentioned, you know, the, the final sort of dependency there, the assumption that will underpin the performance in the next 12 months is, of course, what happens in Europe. Further volatility out of Europe is going to affect global credit markets. So that, that's, that's very important in the overall scheme of things. Uh, one could uh, potentially promote Australian RMBS and uh, covered bonds as a safe haven for uh, mm. all those stricken uh, government bonds uh, holders. Absolutely. <laughs> Would it, would it be fair to say that in, in order for that market to deliver, then more investors need to be moving out of whatever they've currently got their money in, bank bills mm. and government bonds, and into RMBS? That's true. That's because true. there is a whole, at least in Australia, the, um, the superannuation monies continue to accrue, so the, the level of funds there is, is it growing. 
There should also be a move as Australia ages to change slowly out of the equity markets and into the fixed income markets. Mm-hmm. Now that's not going to happen in 12 months, obviously, but mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that will be over a period of 20 or, or 30 years. But that should also drive levels of, of fixed income product, including securitised product and covered bonds. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, no, I think you're, you're spot on there. I think the we're going to have to see more investors come back into the product, which is a trend, but it needs to continue. At the moment, deposits are a very attractive option, for example, with, uh, with bank deposits and competition for deposits. The big focus, I think, for the industry at the moment as you mentioned, is you know we're we're very underweight fixed income in an international relativity sense. You know how do we how do we increase that? I think there is that naturally occurring phenomenon as we um, the demographics change and you know some of the recent underperformance of equities, etc. You'd hope that 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 occurs over time, but does it need a little bit of a, a push along? There's a lot of focus at the moment on what sort of initiatives would assist in in that regard. So. You know, what could be done at a policymaker level to help? Obviously, fund managers and trustees make decisions in the interest of their investors. But at the moment, you know, some aspects of, of regulation and tax are actually skewed um, adversely against fixed income. So, you know, how is that addressed? Can we, can we improve the overall uh, asset allocation to defensive asset classes, including fixed income, including RMBS? But as you say, that's a that's more a medium to longer term objective. Well, we hope in a future podcast to be interviewing an investor or two to get their perspective. Mm. Uh, well, John, thank you very much mm-hmm. for joining us on the inaugural Securitisation Matters podcast. Mm-hmm. Uh, we hope to have you on again at some stage. Thanks, David. You're welcome. As I noted at the start of the podcast, the interview with John Barry was recorded before the ASF conference in October. John has subsequently provided me with some updated information about the market that has occurred since we recorded the interview. In recent months, there has been new issuance activity in the securitisation market, which has been driven by investor demand domestically in Aussie dollars and offshore in US dollars and sterling. NAB has completed nine public RMBS or ABS transactions with a total of $5.4 billion in the past three months. On the 15th of November, NAB upsized and priced a $1 billion RMBS transaction for the Bank of Queensland. The senior A dollar notes priced at one month BBSW plus 135, and the deal included a $100 million sterling three year bullock tranche priced at three month LIBOR plus 70, both of which were structured and placed by NAB. This was the first sterling denominated public Aussie RMBS offering since the GFC. As a matter of interest, UK prime RMBS spreads have tightened significantly over the course of the year and the Bank of England's funding for lending scheme is expected to reduce supply from UK issuers significantly. This creates the opportunity for Aussie RMBS to fill part of the void, particularly if prudential support is given to Master Trust issuance, which would help facilitate the bullet and controlled AM structures preferred by offshore investors. The issue of prudential support for Master Trust structures will be dealt with in a future podcast. John also notes that it will shortly be the one-year anniversary of the first issuance of covered bonds by an Australian bank, on the 23rd of November 2011. Since that date, 40.6 billion Aussie dollars has been issued domestically and offshore in the new covered bond market. Thanks for listening to the Securitisation Matters podcast. Feedback is welcome to my email address, securitisationmatters, all one word, spelled with an S, not a Z, at cygnusadvisory.com.au. 
and that's Cygnus with a C, C-Y-G-N-U-S. If you can't be bothered remembering that, Google Cygnus Advisory blog and leave a comment on the blog, or my profile on the blog also has an email address. Please feel free to subscribe to the blog, which will then alert you to any new podcasts. You can also subscribe on iTunes and new podcasts will be downloaded automatically. As this is the first podcast, I'm particularly interested in any issues of sound quality or other problems you might have detected. If you have any ideas for interview subjects or people for a future Securitization Matters podcast, please send them to. Cygnus Advisory provides advice on securitization matters. If you're an ADI that needs help with prudential matters or a company considering securitization, give us a call to discuss how we can help. We can provide ongoing advice or project teams to finish a securitization-related project if your own staff are too busy. As consultants, we don't add to headcount and there are no staff matters or bonuses to worry about. Thanks again for listening.